Okay, if you've got your Bibles with you, uh, if you can turn to Book of 1 Peter, hopefully you should be fairly familiar with that. You should be able to find your way, your way there fairly quickly now. Uh, I think this is the 13th week we've been in 1 Peter, so as I say, hopefully we're, we're finding our way quickly there now. Just while you are finding your way there, uh, just, just wanted to share something really. Eva, Eva is at that point now where she really knows her mind. She knows what she likes. She knows what she doesn't like, and she's not afraid to let you know either way. And uh, we, we particularly noticed this. She has, when she goes up to bed, she has a chance to have a story or two just to kind of help her wind down while she has a drink of milk. And she's got this favorite book. It's, it's called The Bear. I don't know if anyone knows this. It's a beautiful, really lovely illustrated book. Uh, and every time you ask her what book she wants to read, there's only one answer. It's just bear, 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 bear. And, uh, even if you don't even mention a story, just say, right, it's time for bed, straight away. Bear, 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 bear. And um, me and Steph, it, it's, it is a great book, but after about four or five times reading it as an adult, you're just like, you've kind of reached your limit with it, really. Um, so we, we're trying to show her that there are other books, you know, there are other books that you can enjoy. But we've come up with a pretty smart idea, I think, in that whenever, <laughs> whenever someone's babysitting for Eva, generally it's grandparents, uh, I tend to hide all the other books and I leave the bear out uh, very clear. So she still gets to hear it often, uh, and hopefully for the grandparents it's not too often that they don't enjoy it. But the reason I'm saying this uh, is because, as I say, we're wanting her to realise that there's, there are so many great stories out there for her to enjoy and for her to hear. Now the schools break up this week, great celebration for all you school people. Uh, schools break up next week and that's going to see the start of our summer preaching series. We met up uh, as a preaching team, so the guys who preach on a regular basis, we, we met up to, dis- to kind of think about what it is that we could do over the summer. And the thing that came through and something that all of us really uh, thought, yeah, that's just a great idea, is that we're going to be looking at some of the great stories of the Old Testament, just the, some of the really, really excellent stories in there. What we felt is that, you know, these stories, they're kind of the bread and butter of Sunday school. You know, they're the, the, the things that are really taught and taught well through children's work. They're the stories that you would find in kind of children's first Bibles and those kind of things. But what we felt is that actually these can potentially be neglected in the, in the context that we find ourselves on a Sunday morning. Yeah, we, we teach them to our children and we, we, tell them a sto- uh, we tell them to our children and we do that. But actually there's a potential that they get neglected. Almost what we don't want to do is to think, well, we've left those things behind for the more important things. Because that's never the case. Because these stories reveal a huge amount about who God is, about who his people are and who they're called to be. Uh, and so we're going to be focusing on seven of these, of these stories through, through the summer. Really because they're not isolated stories. They're all part of God's great story they're kind of smaller snapshots of this much bigger picture so that's what we're going to be doing over summer it's going to be an opportunity be an opportunity for the stories to be told and then for us to kind of explore them a bit together Uh, but we're also hoping to make sure that there's different activities and things for the children related to that that they can be doing as well so just to let you know that's the plan for the summer that we're going to be doing but if there's a new series starting next week it means that our current series is coming to an end this week. And it's the series uh, where we've been exploring the book of 1 Peter. We've called it Exiles. And 1 Peter is a letter. It's written to the church in a time of um, opposition and hostility, where Christian beliefs, values and ethics were really challenging the society and the community in which the church and the, the Christians were. But it's a letter that was written to the first century church that very much speaks to us in the 21st century church. A lot of what they were facing, although the context might be different, and actually the way it's expressed is different, is very similar to what we are facing here. So what Peter's writing to the first century church, we can apply to us 
here and, and can explore that together in the 21st century church. So let's pick up then in 1 Peter, say it's the final bit, so the final, the concluding verses really of 1 Peter, we'll pick up from verse 6, which says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does my, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. What you would have seen, and what is actually fairly obvious, is that there's this recurring theme, really, that runs throughout the the whole of 1 Peter, and this recurring theme is that of suffering and trial. It forms a sort of backdrop into which Peter's writing, and that's the, the context that we need to have in our minds. And if it's something that, that runs throughout the book of 1 Peter, something that he keeps coming back to, then, it ha- then we should realise that actually it's something that's very important for us to understand, not to be dismissive of, but to kind of re- really look at it and see what he's saying, and, and look at how we can work our way through it and work it through well and in a godly manner. Now, Mike, uh, a few weeks ago, um, he was talking about, he, he finished where he was looking at what it means for us to live with one another in humility, so to be humble, but in, in terms of what it, one another. But now F- uh, Peter's focus changes from how we're to relate in humility to one another to actually what it means to humble ourselves to God. So it goes from looking at one another to actually let's look to God and what that means. To humble yourself to God, I think it means really is to give everything of yourself entirely to him, to submit to him. It means to bow to his wisdom rather than the wisdom that we have or or the wisdom of the world. To bow to his wisdom. To humble yourself to God is to live in total dependency of his grace and of his mercy. It involves entrusting all of our concerns to him. I think that's what it means to humble ourselves. This can be hard to do. It can be hard to do when things are going well, to entrust everything of yourself over to someone else. It can be particularly hard to do if you're going through a period or, or going through circumstances in your life where you're suffering or going through great difficulty. Because to surrender control outside of ourselves, it can be a, it can be a very hard thing to do. So particularly in suffering, we feel like actually I've just got to, we, we can think I've just got to hold on to whatever control I can just to kind of get through this. I can't let go, that's all I've got. But actually, to submit means actually just giving everything over to God. It can be a hard thing to do. But we do have an example of what humility looks like and humility to God looks like. We find that in Philippians and Philippians chapter 2. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our example of humility is Jesus. That's what that passage in Philippians is saying. Actually, have the same mind of Christ. Be like Christ in what it means to be humble. Because Jesus, he humbled himself before God in total obedience, even to the point of death. He offered everything of himself. He gave over everything of himself to his Father. And because he humbled himself, verse 9 tells us, the lead up to verse 9, says that uh, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because Jesus humbled himself, therefore, God has exalted him. To be exalted means to be lifted up, to be lifted out of, to be lifted high. Because Jesus was humble, because Jesus gave himself in humility to, to the Father, therefore, at the right time, God exalted him. See, God, in light of Jesus' humility, at the proper time, he exalts him. He lifts him up. He bestows on him the name that is above every name. Being humble, having humbled himself on the cross, out of apparent defeat, Jesus is exalted. Out of apparent defeat, Jesus is exalted. And so we've got this pattern of, of humility to exaltation that we see with Jesus. And it's a pattern that Peter picks up on here. It's exactly what he's saying. But he's saying not only is this the pattern that we see in Jesus' life, humility, then exaltation. What Peter's saying is actually this is the pattern that you can expect in your life. From humility to exaltation. At the right time, God will lift you out and lift you up out of whatever you're, you're, you're going through. It doesn't get specific in terms of the timing of that. So whether it's in this present life or whether it's in a time that's later to come, we can be assured that as we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, at the right time, God will exalt us. And God will lift us up. You see, Jesus is our example of humility, but he's also our assurance of exaltation. So look to Jesus. He is your example of humility, but he is your assurance of exaltation. Because it happened to him, and we can see this pattern come through. Peter's saying that's going to be the same thing that God is going to do for us. So humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. When the Bible speaks of God's hand, and it speaks of God's hand an awful lot of times. Uh, and, and what it's talking about is it's about God's power. It's about God's provision. And the, term, the specific term, the mighty hand of God, uh, is one that we, we actually see quite a few times, particularly through the book of Exodus. It refers to the mighty hand of God a lot of times. And that's within the context of God delivering the Israelites out of Egypt, so delivering them out of captivity. It talks a lot about the mighty hand of God. It was the mighty hand of God that delivered the people out of captivity. So I don't think it's any coincidence that Peter's using this exact same phrasing as he would have been really familiar from uh, with, with what the Old Testament was using. He's saying actually to submit yourselves, to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, is to humble yourselves under, under the, the hand of the same God who delivered an entire nation out of captivity. But he did that for, for a nation as a whole, but he's going to do that for you as individuals as well. 
Part of humbling yourself to God is to cast your anxieties onto him. To cast something is to, is to throw it. It's not something that's passive. It doesn't happen accidentally. It's not like you, you just accidentally drop something on the floor. To cast something is to, is to throw it. And we're to cast our anxieties, our concerns and our fears onto God. To hand them over entirely to him. If I'm being completely honest, and I should be completely honest, I know that there are circumstances in my life where I've had anxieties and concerns. And I've said, God, I'm going to hand these over to you. But actually, I know in my heart I've held on to them as well. I've said, God, I'm going to give this over to you. But actually, I'm like, I can't quite let go of it. I've got to keep hold of it because I'm almost like I'm afraid of what might happen if I let go. That's not what casting is. To cast something is to throw it. It's to... to it's to, to get rid of it in that sense. So it's a very deliberate action. It doesn't just happen. So before our fears, worries and concerns overwhelm us, Peter says we need to cast them onto God. We need to give them over to God. But when we do so, we're not entrusting our concerns onto someone who is distant, unknowable or impersonal. But we're casting them onto our Heavenly Father who loves his children. These verses we're looking at, as I said, these are, these are the, really the concluding statements, if you like, of this, of this letter. It's kind of bringing it all into land at this point. Right at the very start, in, verse, uh, in, in chapter 1, in verse 2, verse 3, and verse 17, Peter speaks about the fatherhood of God. I don't think he wrote it and then looked back and thought, oh, I've mentioned the fatherhood of God a lot of times. I think he's being absolutely deliberate and in the first few verses really establishing the fatherhood of God as being of paramount importance because it provides a major part of the foundation upon which the rest of his letter is built. It establishes the fatherhood of God, the fatherhood of God, the fatherhood of God. This is what we need to build upon. This is what the rest of the letter follows on from. So when we come to the verses that we're reading now and Peter is saying, cast your anxieties onto God because he cares for you. He's saying he cares for you because he's your heavenly father. He cares for you because he loves you. We receive this letter as beloved children of God. Therefore, we cast our anxieties as beloved children of God to a father who cares for us. What we're not doing, it's not like we're throwing pennies down a wishing well. That's not what casting your anxieties is like. I'm just going to throw it and hope for the best. Hope that something happens. Actually, we're casting them onto our heavenly father who loves his children. To humble ourselves... As we've just said, part of that is casting our burdens onto God. It doesn't mean that we become dis- it doesn't mean that once we've handed it over, therefore we kind of shut off and become disengaged with what's going on around us. Because having called us to humble ourselves, Peter then says, "Be sober-minded and be watchful." So cast your burdens onto God. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Do not be disengaged or passive, but be alert and ready. Why? Because you have an enemy. Be sober-minded, be watchful, because you have an enemy. To be sober-minded means to see things as they really are, not to get carried away, not to go to the extremes, but to have a, a proper understanding of how things are. The truth is this. The truth is that we have an enemy, and our enemy is the devil. Before we go any further, I'm going to say this, because I think it's important, because everything that follows, for everything that follows, I'm going to say I don't believe that all suffering and trials are caused by the devil. But I do believe that he will seek to take advantage of any suffering and any trials, whether he caused it or not. We're not to be disbelieving or dismissive of him, nor are we to give our enemy too much interest or too much credit. They're the two extremes that being sober-minded helps us 
to avoid. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. I don't know if anyone's read this. It's on my list of one that I really want to read. But in the preface to this book, he says that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and an unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased with both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So they're the two extremes that, that, that you could fall to. Not believing that the devil exists or actually believing and having such an unhealthy interest that, that you kind of go too far with it. What we need to do is have a sober-minded perspective which we'll, we'll find somewhere in the middle of those two extremes. Has anyone here been to London Zoo? We have. Uh, does anyone know what their line, their male line is called? The male line at London Zoo is called Lucifer. I thought that was quite interesting. The reason I think it's quite interesting is because Peter uses the picture of a lion to show us what a sober-minded understanding of our enemy looks like. When I was talking to Steph about this, she said, but hang on a second, doesn't the Bible speak about God as being a lion? She's absolutely right. So we have a situation here where the Bible speaks about God being a lion, but Peter here is saying, actually, he's using this picture of a lion to, to express something or explain something of what the devil is like. We can't ignore that. It, it would be wrong to ignore that. But what I think Peter's doing is actually Peter is drawing out different elements of a lion's behavior and, and different uh, aspects of a lion's nature that would reflect something of, 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 of the devil's nature and the devil's tactics. So he's drawing on different aspects of this picture. And for me, as, as I was thinking about this, there were three things that came to my mind as to why this picture is really helpful for us to understand what the devil is like. The first one is this, is that lions make noise. One of, one of the reasons, it's not the only reason, but one of the reasons that lions will roar is to intimidate. It's an intimidation thing. Satan seeks to bring fear and intimidation. He likes to make a lot of noise. He likes to make a lot of racket. He likes to unnerve us and frighten us and scare us. The word devil actually means slanderer or accuser. He likes to sow lies, fear and deception. You see, in the midst of suffering... The noise he makes might sound a little something like this. This is, this is what I think his, his noise might sound like. You've bought all this on yourself. God must be really angry with you to allow this to be happening right now. You're on your own. No one cares about what you're going through. Well, this is the way it's always going to be. Things will never change. I think that's the noise that he likes to make to spread intimidation and to bring fear and to bring terror so we need to be aware of that our enemy likes to make a lot of noise he likes to get in our ear he likes to intimidate secondly when lions hunt they hunt to kill i like fishing i wouldn't call myself a fisherman because i only go fishing if it's sunny but when i but when i go fishing i do, I do freshwater lake fishing which is the type the type of fishing where, where you catch a fish you pose for a picture, you weigh it, and then you put the fish back. For some people, they really don't understand that. They say, what is the point of fishing if you're just going to put the fish back? kind of defeats the object of what you're trying to do. But that's the thing. Actually, for me, fishing is it's, it's a sport. It's, it's fun. It's something I do. Here's the thing. Lions don't hunt for fun. 
Lions do not hunt to make their prey uncomfortable for a while or to be an inconvenience. There's only one reason why lions hunt, and that is to kill. That is to devour. But it was a few years ago now. James was speaking. I don't know if it was on this particular passage. It was, it was on this one. And he put a picture up just to help us to get this in our minds as to what Peter's trying to get across. It was a grim picture. It was a picture of lions with a carcass that they had just finished off, that they had just picked clean. That is a, that is a, to see it is a powerful image. That is exactly what Peter, the image that Peter's portraying here. That's what Satan, that is what the devil is seeking to do. He wants to, to, in a sense, he wants to destroy us. He wants to finish us. Spiritually, he wants to finish you off. Thirdly, when lions hunt, they pick out the isolated, the vulnerable, and the wounded. That's what they do. They, look, they pick those ones. And I think the devil seeks to, to do the same. He will try and pick off those who are isolated and those who are vulnerable. <coughs> Suffering and trials have the potential to leave us isolated. Because, and again, this is speaking from my experience, I know that I sometimes will tend to withdraw if I'm feeling, if I'm feeling under pressure or if I'm feeling in the midst of a struggle. There's a potential there that I can withdraw from myself and isolate myself. Not only that, Suffering and trials can leave us vulnerable and can leave us wounded. That's what it does to us. So we need to be aware of that because I think these are the things that, that the enemy will try and pick up on. But actually, regardless of suffering, even if everything in our life, we would say everything is going well, all of us have vulnerabilities. We all have vulnerabilities, whether we are aware of them or not. And these are the vulnerabilities that the enemy will try and get a foothold in. I think that's how he works. So... The devil, he likes to make a noise. He likes to, to try and spread fear and intimidation. He's looking to destroy us. He's looking to finish us off. And I think he likes to pick out the isolated, the vulnerable, and the wounded. So we've established who our enemy is. Remember, we're trying to get a sober-minded thing here. Let's not go to the far extreme where we are fearful of him. That's not why Peter's saying this. He's saying, look, let's get a right view of who he is. But let's not stay there, actually. Because having established who our enemy is, Peter then tells us what our response is going to be. He doesn't just say, this is what the devil's like. See, see ya. Connor, you've got to get on with it now. He's like, actually, there's a response that we're to make to this. See, far from saying that Christians should be fearful of him, Peter calls us to resist him. Peter says to resist him. And in his letter, James picks up on this as well. In some verses that are really very similar, in James 4, verse 6 to 8, it says, Therefore, it says that God opposed the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. The message of James is the same message of Peter that we read earlier. Humble yourselves under God. You do that, and then resist the devil, and there's a promise there. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That is what our response is to be, to resist the devil. We've got different writers, two different writers with the same message. I think if we've got the same message being repeated twice, it's for a reason. It's because it's important. It is of utter importance that we understand this. Humble yourselves under God. And resist the devil. And when you do that, he will flee from you. Resist him. Firm in your faith. So place your confidence in God, draw near to him, 
and he will draw near to you. You draw near to God, God will draw near to you. And we've been given everything that we need to resist the devil. Know that. You've been given everything that you need to resist him. We've been given an armory. And we find that, we read of that in Ephesians chapter 6. Which says, therefore, take up the whole armour of God. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all that, to stand firm. Can you see that? We've got this standing firm and this resisting coming through here. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all of the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. So that's the armory that we've been given. In his commentary on 1 Peter, Wayne Grudem says that in practical terms, All the positive resources of the Christian life are to be used. Listen, these are the the resources that we've been given. We've been given prayer, the word of God, praise, the help of fellow believers, verbal rebuke of the enemy, renewed holiness of life. In short, we've been given the whole armour of God. We've got this whole armoury to to use in, in resisting the devil. As I mentioned earlier, and I think this, I, I want to come back to it because I think it's a really important point, is that if we're not watchful, there's a danger that when we're suffering, we can withdraw. I think potentially it's a bit of a, a defence mechanism. But that can leave us isolated. But Peter reminds the readers that they're not on their own in this. He says, actually, this isn't just about you. This isn't, you're not just going through this by yourself. You're not the only one experiencing this. He says that there are brothers and sisters around the world Uh, brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are experiencing suffering as well this is not just you on your own you're part of a family that is much bigger than that he also makes this reference to she who is at Babylon it seems a bit of a weird phrasing and not necessarily sure what what that means without looking into it but what he's talking about there she who is at Babylon is the church in Rome and he's saying actually the church in Rome send their greetings I think he's just emphasising again look You're not on your own in this. There's churches all around. You've got brothers and sisters around the world. You're not isolated in this by yourself. We're a family. We are one body. Romans 12.15 says that for for the body of Christ, we're to rejoice with those who rejoice. We're to weep with those who weep. 1 Corinthians 12.26 says that if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. If you're suffering, if you're in a a period of your life where you feel like you are suffering or going through trials, I want you to know this. And I, I want you to really take hold of this and really believe it. If you are suffering, we are all suffering. This is not about, you're not in this by yourself. If you're suffering, we are all suffering. In God's wisdom, he's called the church together. I say this often, and I I, I say it often because I am so grateful for it. I'm so thankful that God has called me to be a part of a family, that he hasn't left me to work out this Christian life by myself. In his wisdom, he has called us to be a part of a family. And you're a part of a family, not just through the good times, but through the struggles as well. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. If one member is suffering, we're all suffering. If one member is honoured, 
we all rejoice together. So please, do not allow yourself to get isolated. If you're going through a time of suffering, if you're going through a time of of struggling, actually the thing you need to do is to push into the family of God and to share what is going on, that people can support you, people can pray for you, that you can take hold of this armoury that God has given you to resist the devil, but you don't do it by yourself. We do it in community. We do it together. Please do not isolate yourself. We, um, me, Steph and Eva, we go to Wingham Wildlife Park quite a lot. We've got the season tickets there, so we go and make use of it a fair amount. And they've got some lions there. And if, they are, if they're roaring, it doesn't matter where you are in the park, you know that they are there. And actually, if you've ever heard a lion roar, it's, it makes you kind of, kind of stand up and take notice of what's going on. It makes you look around, make sure you know where you are, uh, you want to find out where these lions are, I want to know where they are in relation to me. It puts you on your guard. I know when I've been there, I hear them roar, it puts me on my guard, I take notice, I'm aware what they have the potential to do. But I'm not afraid because they're contained. Does that make sense? So when I go and I see them at the zoo, I hear them roar. It, it makes me, it puts me on alert. I know what they have the potential to do. But I am not fearful because actually I know that they have been contained. We sang, the last song that we sang this morning, uh, before I came up to speak, is Jesus has already won. The devil has been overthrown. That's really, when I'm talking about the, the lion in the zoo, yes, we're aware. We know we have an enemy. But actually, he's, he's limited. Because Jesus has won. And the devil has been overthrown. Juan Sanchez says, puts it like this. I think it, it's really helpful. He says that the devil is real. We must be ready for his attacks. But our Lord has confronted him and defeated him once and for all. Therefore... He who is in us is greater than he who prowls around. The devil is a real foe, but he is a defeated foe. He is a real threat, but he is a limited threat. He is on a leash, and he can only do what God permits him to do, and God has granted us the grace to resist him. That, to my mind, is a sober-minded understanding of who our enemy is. He is a real threat, but he's a limited threat. And God will give us the grace to, to resist him, to withstand him. Whatever suffering or trials you have faced, are currently facing or will face, while they are difficult, while they are painful, they are not permanent. That's what Peter goes on to say. It is not permanent. Just as Jesus suffered, at the right time he was lifted up, he was exalted by the Father. He didn't stay in that state. He was lifted up and he was exalted out of it. Our suffering is not permanent, but our inheritance, our inheritance which is ours through the resurrection of Jesus, is permanent. What I hope has been really clear as we've worked through 1 Peter, he's very real and he's very honest. We will face suffering. That much is guaranteed. Yet we have a hope that goes beyond that. That is a hope which is secure in Christ Jesus. That's what he keeps coming back to all the way through. You will su- you, there will be suffering. You will face trials. But we have a living hope. Yet we have an eternal glory that is secured for us. 
chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verse 4, right back at the start. Again, I think Peter's really establishing, laying the foundations for the rest of the letter. He says that our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Our present suffering will fade. Our future inheritance will not. Whether in, again, whether in this present life, or whether it's going to come later, God will restore us. Sanchez, who I mentioned earlier, he likens Peter's conclusion to this letter, like the finale of a fireworks display. You know the bit where it kind of builds up and builds up, and then all of a sudden they just send up loads of fireworks at the same time, just in this beautiful, beautiful display. And they all go off, it's like boom, 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 all in this final flurry. And he says, actually, what Peter does, it's like he builds to this crescendo that kind of comes off like this to finish his letter. Because he uses these four, four similar verbs that he uses, but all of them really establishing what God is going to do for us. Like these fireworks going up, it's, it's boom, 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 boom. God will restore, confirm, establish and strengthen. And that is where Peter has led us up to. Like the whole letter, the whole letter has been building and building and building to this final finale, this great crescendo of what God has promised he will do for you. And he's promised it through Christ's sacrifice for you. It is secure in Christ. God will restore, confirm, establish and strengthen. That much we can be sure of. Even though in this life there's a lot that we can't be sure of, that we can be sure of. And then Sanchez says that just as the impressive finale of a fireworks display leads to awe, so ought the glorious truth of God's grace. It should lead us to say or to sing to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. When we have the band up, we're going to come to a time of worship. We're actually going to, we're going to take communion together today. We're going to do it at the very start of this time of worship because we want to, to just draw ourselves back to what Jesus has done. But I'd just like to share a story. It's a true story, and I think it's a story that I think just embodies everything that we've just been looking at over this time together this morning. I think it helps us to see what this could look like lived out. It's a story that I may have said before, but I'm not going to apologise for that because I think it's such a good story and it just illustrates perfectly what Peter has been saying. Horatio Spafford was a, he was a prominent American lawyer. He married his wife Anna in September of 1861 and they, they started a family. But the couple lost their son to scarlet fever when he was four years old. Two years later, it's now in 1873, Horatio and Anna decided to take their family to England for a holiday. Business delayed Horatio's departure, but Anna and their, their four, they had four daughters at the time, all aged between 11 and 2. They went on ahead and he would meet them later on in England. On November the 22nd, 1873, while crossing the Atlantic, their ship was hit by another and 226 people lost their lives, including all four of Horatio and Anna's daughters. Anna survived. And she sent a telegram to Spafford telling him of the tragic news of what had happened. Spafford then set sail for England to, to go and be with his wife. And in doing so, he crossed the location where his daughters died. And it was on this journey that he wrote the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. People know that. It's th that was when he wrote it, on that journey. See, in the midst of great tragedy, pain and suffering, he wrote four verses to this hymn. 
include, I'm going to read you two of them. It includes the following. It said, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. And then the final verse is this. And Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trumpet shall resound and the Lord shall descend. And even then it is well with my soul. See, Horatio Spafford was suffering. He was suffering like I could never understand at this point in my life. Yet he submitted control to God. He cast his pain, his grief and his worries onto him. Knowing that all that had been lost would one day be restored. I think that's what we see as we, as, as we look at the, the lyrics of that song. That's what we can see very clearly. And it's my prayer, it's my hope that each of us, at all times and in all situations, would be able to make that same de- declaration that Horatio Spafford made. That in the midst of what, what's going on, that we can declare that it is well with my soul. Because of what Christ has done. And because I know one day, whatever has been lost is going to be restored.